That's what we're going to say. We're, we accept it. The church has traditionally accepted it as John. So we'll say that it's John. We do know when it was written, however. We know that it was written in the mid-90s of the first century. This is the first gospel that was not written in a scroll. It was written on codex, which are pages, just like we have, that are glued together. So that's the, and we know when codex, when people started using codex, and that was at the end of the first century. We have fragments of John's gospel. You know, after they wrote the gospel, you know, they made copies and all this kind of stuff. And we have a few fragments that date to 125 A.D. So we know that it was written before 125 A.D. And we think it was written probably after 90 A.D. So it was written somewhere in the late first century. Um, this means something. Because this means that... Uh, the temple's been destroyed. John's going to talk about Jesus cleansing the temple. The temple has been destroyed by the time John writes this. A million people, a million Jews, have been killed by the Romans. There was a great Jewish war that took place between 66 and 70, where the Jewish people rebelled against Rome, and Rome just slaughtered them. One million Jews were slaughtered. And the rest of the Jews were scattered throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so when John writes this, he's writing it to a, a church that is familiar with these kinds of events. The Gospel of John is very unique also. <clears throat> when I say unique, I mean it's not like the other Gospels. The other Gospels cover only one year of Jesus' life. We don't realize that when we just read it. The Gospel of John covers three years of Jesus' life. 92% of the content of John's Gospel appears in no other Gospel. Only 8% of what's in John's Gospel appears in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So that makes this a very special Gospel. Okay? And if I were going to lay out the book, here's how I'm going to divide the entire book for you, for those of you who like to take notes. The book is divided into what I would call four sections. Section number one is the introduction. Okay, the introduction. Am I still on? I guess I am. I, I got a little less sound. Okay. The introduction. The introduction is chapter one. Okay. It's divided into two parts, a prologue and testimonies. That's chapter one, the introduction. Then chapters two through 17 constitute the main body of the book. Okay. So we'll call that the main body of the book. Chapters 2 through 12 is Jesus' ministry to the world. Jesus' ministry to the world, chapters 2 through 12. Chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' ministry to the disciples. And that's where he, you have those chapters 13 through 17 where Jesus is gathered in the upper room and they're having a meal and this is where Jesus washes their feet and does a lot of other things. Strictly ministers to the disciples. In chapters 2 through 12, the ministry to the world, he does that in public. In 13 through 17, the ministry to the disciples, that's done behind closed doors. That's done in private. So that's the main body. And then the next section of the book is the climax. And that is where Jesus is arrested, put on trial, 
crucified and then appears after the resurrection. That's chapters 18 through 21. And the final section is made up of one verse. And it's an epilogue. And if you remember those old television series that were produced by Quinn Martin, you always had part one, part two, part three, part four, and there was commercials in between each one of those. And then at the end, there was an epilogue. John includes an epilogue. It's made up of one verse. And it says this. Jesus did many other things. In fact, so many things that if they were written down, the whole world couldn't contain them. So John has picked certain things to tell us about to drive home his point. So that's a little background of John's gospel. I think you're going to enjoy it. So we're going to look at the prologue today. And the prologue is verses 1 through 18. Uh, I'm only going to cover the first 13 verses today simply because of time, okay? So the prologue is similar to a foreword in a book. Uh, when an author writes a foreword, you read it and you get a glimpse into what the book's going to be about, what the rest of the book's going to be about. And in this foreword, in this prologue, John tells us the various themes that he's going to mention throughout the book, like light and darkness, grace and truth, testimony, witness, birth. You're going to see those kinds of concepts here in the prologue. And then he's going to focus on those themes throughout his gospel. So let's look at verse 1. Let's notice how John's gospel opens. He says, In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. So notice how John's gospel opens. He takes us right back to creation. That's how Genesis 1 opens, isn't it? In the beginning. And John opens up, takes us right back to creation. Totally different than the other gospels. Matthew starts with Abraham. You ever look at it? That's the first name mentioned. Luke goes back to Adam. But John, he goes all the way. And by the way, and uh, Mark, he just goes to John the Baptist. That's where he starts. But John goes all the way back to creation. And notice what he says. In the beginning was the Word. What Word? How are, we to, how are we supposed to understand this, this term, word, you know? Uh, the Greek from which this is translated is a term called logos. You've heard of logos? And to John's audience, that meant something. That Greek word would mean something. Plato said logos was the divine principle that gave meaning and logic to the universe. So if you were a Greek philosopher and you heard the word logos, you would say, oh, that's the divine principle that gives logic and meaning to the universe. Now I'm giving you that because if you go to a commentary, they're going to spend pages and pages on that one term, logos or word. Okay? But John says, no, that's not how I'm looking at it. Okay? When I talk about a word, I'm not talking about a divine principle. I'm talking about a divine personality. And he's going to show us how this word, down in verse 14, became flesh. See, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word became, or had personality. The Old Testament writers 
I have a, a, uh, a similar term that they use, and the word they use is wisdom. They say wisdom uh, represents God's mind and God's will. And if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, he'll talk, he's always talking about wisdom, isn't he? And many times in the book of Proverbs, wisdom takes on a personality. Wisdom is personified. It's personified as a woman in the book of Proverbs. Sophia. That's what the word wisdom, what the Greek word for wisdom is, is Sophia. And wisdom is personified as a woman. John chooses not to use Sophia as God's mind or God's thinking or God's will. He decides to use the word logos, word, because this word becomes flesh, and it doesn't become enfleshed in a woman, it becomes enfleshed in a man. So he uses a different term, which is sort of interesting. Although some of the other writers say Jesus is the wisdom of God, don't they? You, any, you know anybody that calls, calls Jesus the wisdom of God? Well, see, if you were in my class, you'd get a, probably a D- minus for that answer. Right? In, my, in my class at college. But the Apostle Paul says he's the wisdom of God. He says that in Colossians and in Ephesians. But John says, no, he said, I'm going to talk about this word that pre-existed from the beginning that took on flesh and became a man among us. Okay? So what's John trying to say when he's talking about word? Okay? If I said, well, what is a word? You would say to me, a word is a vehicle through which we communicate. Right now, you're communicating, Street, and you're communicating through what? Through words, see? And so words are the way we communicate and express ourselves. So I say to you, you know, I love you. That means something. I forgive you. That means something. For Randall. Will you marry me? He said that about two or three weeks ago. That meant something. Notice how powerful words are. I love you. I forgive you. Will you marry me? Words have power behind them. And what John says is that these, this word has power behind it. To the Jewish mind, the word, to Jews, the word refers to God expressing himself in speech. And just think how much more powerful God's words are than our words. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. He spoke words and what happened? I mean, that's powerful. He said, will you marry me? And guess what? She could have said no. His words would have had no power. Depends on how you present those words. When God speaks, things happen. See? So, here we have this John beginning with this phrase, words. Words are expressions, and words are the way God expresses himself. And he says this, in the beginning, you know, referring to the starting point of time, there was the word. Okay, now what's the nature of this word? Because he tells us what the word is. Watch this now. You're going to see three things about the word. First of all, the eternality about the word. The word was eternal. Look what it says. In the beginning was the word. Before anything was created, in the beginning was the word. The word was eternal. Okay? Look at the equality of the word in verse 1. And the word was with God. The word was with God. It means the word was, the, the word with there can mean toward God, next to God, but it probably means in relationship to God. 
You, the word was in relationship to God. Um, see, this is why the prologue of John is so difficult. You can't separate God from his words. If God doesn't speak, you don't know him. That's the bottom line. You can surmise some things. You can look at creation, you can say, well, I know it didn't create itself, so there must be a God who created it. But guess what? That's just a guess, isn't it? Because other people look at creation, they say what? It's evolved. So, see? So, if you're going to know God, you have, God has to express himself. And so this word is in relationship to God. And you can't separate God from his words. Okay? Uh, you know, we have a, a word that we use that identifies certain things. We have the word logo. Do you ever see a logo? So when you see the golden arches, what do you think? McDonald's. You can't separate the logo from McDonald's. Or you see that upside down peace sign on some cars. What's that tell you? Oh, it's a Mercedes. Yeah, that's right. It's a Mercedes. Only Dowling knew that. Now, why is that? She doesn't drive a Mercedes. But notice how the logo and the company have a relationship with each other, and to know the logo is to know the company immediately. And your opinion of that company, well, God has a logo or a logos. He has a word, and that word is a relation to him, shift to him. And when you know the word, you'll know what God's like. Okay? So this is what John's trying to, to get at. And then he talks about the essence of the word. So we have the eternality of the word. It's been from the beginning. We have the equality of the word. When you saw the word, it's the same as seeing God. And then you see the essence of the word in verse 1. And the word was God. Okay? The word was God. Now, he doesn't explain that. What does it mean the word was God? He doesn't explain it. He just states it as a fact. In fact, he says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Just reiterates verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. Now, how can you be with God and how can you be God at the same time? The word was with God in verse 1. The word was God in verse 1. How can you be with God and be God at the same time? He doesn't explain. He just states it as a fact. But notice that there is a pronoun there in verse 2. You see that pronoun? It's the pronoun he. Do you see that? The word is a person. Do you see that? The word has personality. Okay. So, he is, the word is a he. The word has personality. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in verse 17, we see that the word is given a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. So, John is going to say the word has personality. The Word's been here from the beginning. The Word has a relationship with God. In fact, the Word is God. The Word became a person. And the Word has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. So that's what he's doing here in this prologue. And, it, you know, it can get complicated. So here you see, this is what the Word was. Now look what the Word did. Look in verse 3. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. So what the Word did, the Word created. God created through this personality called the Word. So He's the Creator. The Word's the Creator, along with God. I mean, we don't understand all that, but that's how what it says here. And He's not trying to explain anything here. 
He's just laying it out. He's just saying, I'm going to talk about a word. I'm going to talk about all these different things. And he's just sort of introducing you to these subjects. Now look what the word possesses in verse 4. In him was life. Notice that the word possessed life. And this would be eternal life or immortal life. And the reason the word possesses life is because the word is of the same essence as God. Notice where the life is. It's in him. Do you see that? It's within him, within the word who has personality. He hasn't identified him yet. He doesn't do that down to verse 17. You know? But he says the life, this immortal life, is in him. That means that residing within Christ from the beginning was immortal life. That means he needs nothing outside of himself to exist. Part of his nature is eternal. And it's life. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist. This is what we call a self-existent human being. We're not self-existent. We need something outside of ourselves to exist. I need air. I need food. I need water. I need sleep. I need all these things to exist. Take any one of those things away, I do not exist. I die. I do not have immortal life within me. No human being does. And when we talk about the immortality of the soul, we do a disservice to Christianity. Because Christianity never spoke of the immortality of the soul. There's only one who's immortal, who has life within him that needs nothing else to exist, and that's Christ. And that's a really an important theme in John's Gospel. We can have eternal life, but what do we have to do to have eternal life? We have to have this relationship with the one who's eternal. He's the one that has to give us the life. Otherwise, we don't have eternal life. And so this is very important for uh, John's Gospel. So that's what he says there. In him was life and And, when, and he can give life to us, and when he does, none of the life in him is depleted. It's not like he's running out. He can, because his life is eternal, it's been there from the beginning, and he can just give us life, and it doesn't diminish his life. See? And then it says something else here. It says, and, verse 4, look at this, and the life, that means it was in him, was the light of men. He's not only the life bearer or the life giver, he is the light bearer or the light <coughs> giver. Who does he give it to? To men. You see that? Which just means the human race. Now, words, he's called the word, and words express something. Words explain something. But light reveals something. And he's going to reveal the Father to us. And he shines his light on the truth and on God's nature. So light reveals something. In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men, of human beings. So light reveals things. Look, turn these lights off. Now we have no windows here. Turn all the lights off and guess what we're in absolute darkness. 
You and, and then if I told you, now here's what I want you to do, switch chairs. Just go around till you find an empty chair and switch. You'd bump into each other, you wouldn't know who you're bumping into. And then finally sit down. And now I say, now who's sitting next to you? Guess what? You wouldn't know. But then I would say, turn the light on, and the light would reveal who was sitting next to you. The light reveals that which is hidden. We cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. He's the light that shines on God. Notice, He was the light. The life was the light of men. And then, not only was it in the past, when Jesus walked the earth, for example, but look at verse 5. You see, it didn't only reveal something in the past. See verse 4? The life was. See, was. You see that? The light of men. But look in verse 5. There's also a present revelation. Look what it says. And the light, what? Shines right now. Do you see that? In the darkness. The light of Christ is still shining. It's still shining when John writes this in 95 AD. And it's still shining today. And if we can somehow get into the light that Christ shines, we can see what God's like. And He will reveal what we're like. He'll reveal our sins. He'll reveal the things that, uh, that are within our heart, in a sense. So that's what's happening. And then it goes on to say, the light shines in the darkness. Okay. Verse 5. Right now, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or some translations say the darkness did not conquer it. The darkness did not overcome it. The darkness did not overcome the light. Which seems to indicate that when Christ came into the world and He shone the truth of God, He said, if you've known Me, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He's shining the light on what God's like. It says that the darkness did not overcome the light. Or overtake the light. That means there was an effort when Jesus walked the earth to overtake him and shut him up and put out his light in a sense. And you know what the Romans did to him and the conspirators of the, among the Jewish people who were with the Romans, they tried to snuff him out, didn't they? And they put him to death and they said, now we've got him. But were they able to overtake him? Were they able to overcome Christ? No, because three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. So they failed, you see. So, notice there is light and darkness in there. Do you see that in verse 5? There's light and darkness. That's a contrast. Now watch this. Watch very carefully, because I have to lay out this introduction before we really get into the book. I want you to get this. Now look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4. The life was the light. Do you see that? What was the light? Life equals light. Do you see that? Life equals light. Light equals life. Put it that way. Light equals life. Now, verse 5, darkness. If light equals life, darkness equals what? Death. Do you see that? That's the contrast. Jesus is the light who gives life, and then there's darkness that produces death. And this death tried to overtake Jesus, 
but it wasn't able to conquer him because God raised him back from the dead. So that's the nature of the word right there. Now we talk about the ministry, or the minister of the word. Now watch in verse 6. Now we have a little change here. It says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we're going to call this the minister of the word. Okay? We saw the nature of the word, now the minister of the word. Notice his identity. His identity is there was a man sent from God. You see that? There was a man sent from God. Okay? There was a man sent from God. Now we have a contrast. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. The Word is what? God. You see that? The Word is God. You see that in verse 1? But in verse 6, there's a man sent from God. Okay. Now, this man is John, and that's John the Baptist. So the Word equals God, John equals a man. And his name was John, and he is an ambassador for God. He is sent from God. Now watch, he was sent from God. What's his mission? This man came for a purpose. Look at it. He came for a witness. Do you see that? Here's his mission, John the Baptist's mission. He came for a witness to bear witness to what? The light. He is the witness to the light. For what purpose? That all through him, that's the light, might believe. That all through him might believe. He was not the light. Now John was not the light. But he was sent to bear witness to the light. Okay, so now we see we're, there's, this, there's this word. It's God. It's light. It's life, and now there's a man sent by God, and his job is to bear witness to that light and to that word. Now, why does light have to have a witness? Why does John have to bear witness to the light? I said this a couple years ago. Why does John have to bear witness to the light? Lights don't need to have anybody bear witness to them. If I turned out all the lights, and then I pulled out of my pocket... A flashlight and I turned it on would you all see the light I wouldn't have to say Troy tell everybody what's happening he said oh there's a light he wouldn't have to bear witness to the light why wouldn't it yeah everybody sees it. light bears witness to itself so what in the world why does John have to bear witness to the light when when light bears witness to itself and the best way I can explain this is through an illustration. In World War II, the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London was G. Campbell Morgan, a very famous preacher. I have all of his sermons. And uh, Germany was bombed. The Germans were bombing London at the time, in the Battle of London. And the German planes with bombers would come over at night, and they would be picked up on radar, and then the sirens would go off. And when the sirens went off in the city of London, you know what everyone had to do? Turn out their lights. And so, when Westminster Chapel was meeting on Sunday night, and there was the air raid sirens, they had to turn their lights off, and they would worship in the dark. 
One time the sirens went off and they turned the lights out and by mistake someone hit the light switch and it went on. And Westminster Chapel lit up like a Roman candle. You could see it from 30,000 feet. It's a wonder they didn't get bombed out that night. Now, that's the nature of light. When, when that person hit the light switch by mistake and it lit up, guess what? It was seen by the planes. Everybody could see it. Light bears witness to itself. So my question is, it doesn't need a witness. They didn't need to, the planes didn't need to get something over, you know, the PA system and say, now you're going to see a light. <laughs> they saw the light. So why does John have to bear witness to the light when it bears witness to itself? Doesn't even make sense, does it? Well, that's where the rest of the story comes in. So what happened this night when the lights went on and just everybody went, <gasps> and one person said, well, what happened? What just happened? And the person next to him said, well, somebody switched the lights on by mistake. Now, why did that man have to bear witness to the light and say, somebody just switched the light on by mistake? Because the man who asked the question was blind. And he couldn't see the light. John has to bear witness to the light because the people in the world at Jesus' time are in darkness. They're blinded. The scripture says Satan has blinded our eyes and we can't even see the light. Even though the light's shining all around us, we can't see it. We say evolution, we say this, we say that. We'll come up with everything because we're blinded. We can't see the truth. So we need somebody to proclaim and witness to the light. And John is the witness to that light. So John is the light witness. He witnesses to the light bearer who is Jesus Christ. And that's our problem. We're all blinded by sin. Now look at verse 9. It says, talking about... Jesus being the light. That was the true light which lights every man coming into the world. Do you see that? Jesus lights every man coming into the world. We just can't see it. He lights every person without distinction. doesn't matter whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile. Notice how he's described in verse 9. That was the true light. The true light which comes into the world. There are a lot of false lights out there. See, and Jesus was the true light. Uh, John will say later on, you have to be careful that the light that you see is not actually from Satan. Satan himself can appear as a shining light. And you have to be very careful, and John's going to talk about discernment in this gospel. He's the true light. The prophet said there's going to be a light that shines unto the Gentiles, and it's going to be the Messiah. Okay, now we see how the light becomes incarnated in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, that's Jesus. He was the light. And the world was made through him. He came into the world. That means he became a man. The world that he created, he came into. The world was made through him. And now you get the response of the world. But the world did not know him. Do you see that? 
That's its negative response. The world did not know him. It couldn't recognize Jesus as the light. Because they were blinded. They needed a witness. The world did not know him. Now, look at verse 11. He came to his own. That would be the Jewish people. Maybe creation. It's probably the Jewish people. He came to his own, to the Jews. And his own did not receive him. They did not welcome him. It's a very interesting word, the word received there in the Greek. It's a word that means uh, welcome in the sense of being hospitable towards the person. It means hospitality. It means taking them in. You know, remember when Jesus, in, in the Matthew, he says, you know, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was naked. And they said, the Lord, when? And he said, well, since you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And he cast them out in the outer darkness. That's hospitality. He came to his own and they didn't welcome him. They rejected him. So that's the, the negative response. And they rejected him by putting him on the cross. But then we have a positive response. But as many as did welcome him or receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who did receive him, who responded positively, as John the Baptist preached, and as Jesus preached, and so forth, he gave them the right, or the authority, that's what the word right there means, the authority, to become children of God. So, he's not only creator, he is the redeemer, and he gives them the right. Those who receive him, those who receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Those that welcomed him got a right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Do you see that? That's what it means to receive him. You have to believe in his name. What does that mean? The light has a name, and that name is Jesus. And you have to believe in his name. If you believe in him, if you rewelcome him and you believe in his name, which means you trust him for everything, you can become a child of God. Now, what in the world does that mean that you can become a child of God? You know, the pastor today quoted a verse about the Pharisees. They said, we're children of Abraham, we're children of God, and what did Jesus say you're children of? The devil. So, Jesus said, you can become, have a relationship with God, and that relationship with God comes through me. You become God's children, but you have to welcome me, and you have to believe in me, the one who represents God. Now, watch this. To those who believe in his name, verse 12, who were born not of blood. This is the description how you get into God's family. Verse 13, who were born not of blood. Now this is actual, actually a plural noun, and it means this. It would read literally this. You become a child of God by receiving and believing not, listen, not who were born not of bloods, plural, bloods. What in the world does that mean? Who were born not of bloods, plural. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? It's a Hebrew idiom. 
it means bloodshed. Bloodshed. Now, see, this is where John gets really complicated for us today because it, we don't, we're not familiar with Hebrew idioms. But he says, those who believe in these names who were not born of bloods. And so now we'll read it this way. Who were not born of bloodshed. What in the world does that mean? Well, there were many people who were trying to get into the kingdom, and they were trying to do it through bloodshed. Jesus said, the violent try to take the kingdom by force. And that's how we'll show that we're children of God. He says, no, you don't become a child of God through force, by overthrowing the Roman government, by setting up God's kingdom that way. Second way you don't do it, nor of the will of the flesh. You don't become children of God by the will of the flesh. That means you're not children of God simply because you're, you were born to two human parents who were Jewish, and that makes you children of God. You might be children of the devil. So it's not through your physical birth. It's not through violence that you become children of God. You're not born a child of God, in other words, just because you were born Jewish. pastor today talked about not... All of Israel is Israel. Right? Not everybody who's a Jew is a real Jew. Just because you were born Jewish doesn't make you a child of God. You have to believe. You have to receive. And then, also, not of the will of men. Not of the will of men. You don't become a child of God through self-effort. Through your own self-will. Is that what the pastor was talking about today? Not through your self-will. It's through God who, what did he say? Chooses you, elects you, or whatever, right? It's not through your self-will. It's God who wills it. And that's what he's saying there. Because look at the end of verse 13. But from God. You see that? But from God. Not born, watch it, not born... Of blood, flesh, will of men, but of what? God. Born of God. That's how you become a child of God. You have to be born of God. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. And this eternal life that he's talking about is life in the kingdom. You enter the kingdom of God. The words kingdom of God and eternal life are synonyms in John's gospel. Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you're what? Born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's in John chapter 3. A few verses later, he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life and kingdom of God are exactly the same thing in John's gospel. You have to be born from above. How are you born from above? You receive, welcome Jesus, and you believe in Jesus. And all that he says he is, and you accept it, and you pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And God's Holy Spirit, it's a supernatural birth. We'll see in John chapter 3 and other places, God gives his Holy Spirit, and we are born just like that. The same as we're born of two human parents through normal means. So God gives his Spirit, and we're born again through supernatural. And this is what John's going to talk about. He's going to talk about how this light has come into the world. And this is what the whole gospel is about. Every part of this gospel is going to be about this. 
Jesus is the light who shines upon every person. Every person he comes in contact with, he reveals God to them. Every single one. And some will reject it. And that's what you're going to see. This story after story. People who reject it. And some will welcome him and believe upon him. And those who believe upon him will have eternal life. And the rest will not have eternal life. And these things will be carried through. So next week we're actually going to get into the testimonies in John's Gospel. It's very interesting as we start to see that there are some people who recognize Jesus for who he is. John the Baptist will recognize him. Nathaniel will recognize him. Philip will recognize him. And we'll see the testimony of these people who received him. Then we'll go into the next chapters. And we'll see the testimony of those who reject him. And then we'll go into the next chapter. We'll see those who receive him. And we'll go into the next chapter. We'll see those who reject him. And you'll see this from you know, the woman at the well, the Nicodemus, you know, all these different people that Jesus comes in contact with. This is going to be the theme of this particular book. So that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you that we can, uh, we can start a new gospel and uh, we can get a, a glimpse into what the book's going to be about. Uh, we realize how difficult the prologue has been for you know, Bible teachers and theologians throughout the years trying to figure out what this word is all about. Uh, but by the end, we will realize it become crystal clear. So Lord, we thank you for this time where we could start the book and get this introduction. We look forward to the next week when we jump in and get to the body of, of, of the book. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.